Well, last year on a balmy Saturday morning in January, an alert warning of nuclear doom was erroneously sent to millions of people across the state of Hawaii. The message read like this, ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii, seek immediate shelter, this is not a drill. Now, can you imagine... You're sitting on a beautiful beach overlooking the Pacific Ocean when all of a sudden your phone buzzes and you read this. Well, those were the words that flashed on cell phones and television screens all across the state. And that was the result of a gaffe by an employee of the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency. His mistake was this. He selected the wrong option in a text-based drop-down menu. Can anybody say job opening? Now, the employee who made the mistake has expressed profound regret, but the blunder has since been overshadowed by the ominous and obvious hypothetical, what if the threat had been real? I mean, Hawaii was the first U.S. state to implement a warning system designed to detect nuclear threats in July of 2017, but this incident seems to have shaken the public's trust in its effectiveness. And so let me ask that question again, what if that threat had been real? Because I doubt many people were prepared to get to a safe location. Uh, Perhaps they weren't aware of the warning system or they never thought the threat would come. But truthfully, with the current state of our world, false alarms may soon be real alarms. The end of the world, as we know it, may be closer than we realize. Now for some, that's a bunch of science, science fiction nonsense. Um, But for others, the idea that humanity could someday be wiped out by a a nuclear holocaust or uh, a doomsday virus or some environmental catastrophe is not hard to imagine. I mean, some people predict climate change is going to end the world in 12 years. Uh, India and Pakistan were threatening each other even recently with nuclear war. Unrest is constant in the Eastern Europe, the Middle East, parts of Africa, and with technology as it is, we're more aware of natural disasters like earthquakes and storms around the globe. So, I'd ask again, what if we wake up one day and the threat is real? See, the prospect of the end of the world has led to a fascination, even an obsession with biblical prophecy for centuries. Innumerable people have predicted the end. Let me give you some highlights. Um, In 960, Bernard of Thuringia, a German theologian, calculated 992 as the most likely year for the world's end. And as the time approached, panic was widespread. Now, after studying the Bible uh, and the mystical messages of the Great Pyramids, in 1874, Charles Taze Russell, founder of the sect that became known as the Jehovah's Witnesses, concluded that the second coming had already taken place. He declared that people had 40 years or until 1914 to enter his faith or be destroyed. Later, he modified the date to be very soon after 1914. In the 1970s, a book entitled The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey caused another flurry of end times predictions. Uh, There was another book in 1988 that was entitled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. That also came out. Um, I think at this point, nobody's buying that book anymore. (laughs) Frenzies occurred around the year 2000 with the supposed Y2K bug in computers. In 2012, there was a renewed fascination surrounding the Mayan calendar predictions of the end of the world. And the preacher Harold Camping had to revise his end of the world predictions multiple times before he finally gave up. 
Oddly, he died in 2013, ironically, before Jesus came back. Friends, we are fascinated with the end of the world. But here's the truth. One day, the end will come. One day, we will wake up, perhaps not to a message on our cell phones, but to the Son of Man riding in on the clouds. At the end of Matthew 23, after he confronts the Pharisees, Jesus says this. He says, see, your house is left desolate to you. Your, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, the house he's speaking of there is the temple. And the reference is to Psalm 118.26. And those two statements point to towards two prophecies Jesus will give in Matthew 24. The destruction of Jerusalem and his second coming. Now, let me pause for a second and just admit that this may feel a bit like a hard turn in our series because for three months we have been looking at the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. But we're nearing the end. We only have two weeks to go. Easter's coming. Our series has been called His Kingdom Come because the King has arrived on the scene. His kingdom is here. But today we're going to look also at some future elements of His kingdom. So let's take ourselves to the scene. Jesus is leaving the temple and his disciples come to him and start pointing to the buildings of the temple. And they're likely making statements about the beauty of the temple and its construction. But then Jesus says something really shocking. He says, you know what? The temple is going to be destroyed. He says, there's not going to be left one stone on another. And this would have shattered the disciples' worldview. Wait, Jesus, what do you mean the temple is going to be destroyed? What? So they followed Jesus up to the Mount of Olives, just outside Jerusalem. And if somebody were sitting on the Mount of Olives, they would get a spectacular view of the city below and a particularly good view of the temple. It, even today, it looks something like this. And as they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, looking directly at the Temple Mount, the disciples asked Jesus two questions that will frame his response in Matthew 24 and 25. They say this, tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And those questions lay the foundation to what has famously been called Jesus' Olivet Discourse. This is the fifth and final discourse in Matthew where Jesus talks about the future. So two questions. When will this happen? What will the signs be? Now I have to tell you at the outset here that this passage is a controversial passage. Uh, there's many different views about what happens, when they happen, so I'm going to ask you to listen with an open mind and an open hand. We'll look at the whole discourse today at a very high level, and I'll also say that this is a more difficult task than preaching the Sermon on the Mount in one sermon because there's lots of weedy issues that we can get into, and so I'm going to heed Jesus' words from last week's sermon and not get into the weeds. At the end of the day, the passage is about this truth. Jesus is coming back. Are you ready? Jesus is coming back. Are you ready? And so we'll look and see three scenes that teach us how to live in light of Jesus' return. The three scenes are this. The pains, the prophecies, and the preparations. The pains, the prophecies, and the preparations. And so I pray today that Jesus will ready our hearts for his coming, and with that in mind, would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we recognize that there's sections of Scripture that are hard to hear, sections of Scripture that, that, that are hard to understand, Lord. And so I pray for an extra measure of your grace and uh, teaching us what you would have us to hear today. But at the end of the day, Lord, uh, we know you're coming back. We know as bad as this world is, you'll make all things right. You'll make a new heavens and a new earth, Lord. And as we listen today, I pray that that hope would be on our hearts and would teach us how to live in the present. So we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we'll look at three scenes to answer the disciples' two questions. The first two scenes will answer the second question, what will the signs be? And the final scene will focus on the disciples' first question, when? Will this happen? Well, the first thing Jesus talks about are the pains, and he begins in a very interesting way in verse 4. It says, And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Now take notice that the first thing Jesus says is, See that no one leads you astray. Why does he begin this way? Well, to answer that question, we really need to look at the following verses. And so in verse 6, we hear that there's going to be wars and unrest. In verse 7, we read that nations are going to rise up against nations, and there's going to be famines, and there's going to be earthquakes. Now, consider what it's like to live during great suffering. I mean, we have examples to consider just in the last few years. A a massive hurricane, hurricane strikes Puerto Rico, knocking out the power grid for months. It leaves people in need of food and water. Inhumane acts occur in places like North Korea, as well as terrorist attacks in places like Nigeria with groups such as Boko Haram. Massive flooding happens in Houston with Hurricane Harvey. And can anyone remember back to 2012 when they had to ration gas lines in New Jersey because of Hurricane Sandy? That certainly felt like the end of the world, right? My point is this, when great suffering occurs, it is then that we look for someone to save us, and we're more willing to be led astray because they claim they can help us. You see, the reason Jesus first says, let no one lead you astray, is because he knows suffering is coming for his followers. But the second half of verse 6 is equally strange. He says this, see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. So let's recap here. Uh, The disciples ask Jesus what the signs of his coming will be. And the first two things he says are, don't be led astray and don't be alarmed. And that's both comforting and disturbing at the same time and also ironic because when things get hard, isn't that exactly what we do? We get alarmed and we're easily more led astray. In fact, if I were one of the disciples, I would probably say something like this. Jesus, can you stop speaking in riddles? I mean, you've been speaking in riddles the whole time we have been with you. Can't you just give me a straight answer, Jesus? Jesus simply says, it's going to be hard. Not only that, it's not even the end. He says this in verse 8, all these are but the beginning of birth pains. In other words, you're going to hear and see all these horrible things, but there's a lot more to come. What is Jesus saying? Well, now, if you're a parent out there, especially a mother, uh, you know how difficult birth pains can be. When my wife gave birth to our daughter, she had preterm contractions for six weeks, and then she was in labor for 22 hours, and she was ready to be done after two, I got to tell you. See, labor is painful and hard, but at the end of labor, 
you experience the birth of a new, beautiful life that you hold in your arms. And what Jesus is saying here is this. Yes, you will experience pain in this world, but I am allowing you to go through it so that your faith may be proved of greater worth than gold, as Peter writes. In other words, God doesn't save us from trials. He saves us through trials. He refines and teaches us to trust him even more. Now, since we're looking at a passage on eschatology, some may ask the natural question, well, what about the rapture? Uh, Won't Christians be spared suffering? That all depends on your interpretation. Uh, Personally, I don't think verses 4 to 14 are primarily talking about what some call the great tribulation at the end of the age. Jesus doesn't use that phrase until verse 21. This section refers to the tribulations Christians have and will experience throughout the centuries. But even when we consider the prospect of the rapture, there's really four positions about that. Uh, First, some believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, where Christians are removed before the final period of suffering and judgment. Some opt for a mid-tribulational rapture, where Jesus comes for his church in the middle of the tribulation period. Some, third, some believe in a pre-wrath rapture before the final period of God's judgment. And finally, uh, a number of people opt for a post-tribulational rapture position. And people who hold this position argue that the second coming and the rapture are the same event. Now, to discuss these issues thoroughly, we would have to look at a number of passages, and that's really beyond our scope today and really beyond the scope of the passage. And I'll I'll just simply say that there are smart, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians on all sides of this debate, and it's something we should really hold with an open hand. But none would dispute that Christians have and will experience suffering for their faith in this age. The pains produce perseverance and passion because to walk through them means we have to really love Jesus. In verses 9 and 10, Jesus paints an even darker picture, which calls back to Matthew 10. Matthew 10, of course, Jesus' mission discourse. Jesus says in there, he's going to send us out as sheep among wolves. In verse 9 of chapter 24, he says, we're going to be delivered up to tribulation. We'll be put to death. We'll be hated by the nations. And the great Christian martyrs of the ages have known this to be true, beginning with Stephen in Acts 7. And at that point, Jesus' first words echo in our hearts, don't be led astray. But sadly, many will. In verse 10 to 12, Jesus says many will fall away, that there will be betrayal and hatred. People will follow false prophets and lawlessness will increase. And what will happen? Verse 10, he says, the love of many will grow cold. The love of many will grow cold. Church, is your love for Jesus warm enough to endure persecution, to endure tribulation? That when the dial gets turned up and things get hot, will your heart be consumed with love for Jesus or fear for your life? I think this is why Jesus also says, don't be alarmed. In other words, he says, recognize that I am in control. Recognize this world is not all there is. And if you are not alarmed, the next verse can be said of you. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Why? Because the heart that loves Jesus above all else has the power to persevere. Is that us? 
You see, here's the thing, church. Jesus says, if you follow me, if you truly follow me, you will have trouble in this world. And the things Jesus is talking about in this passage are not just for the future, they're for the now. From the time Jesus was resurrected and ascended into heaven, the Bible says we're in the last days. And Jesus is speaking again to his disciples here in this passage, but he's also speaking to us, his current disciples, and he says this, don't be led astray because things will get hard. Don't be alarmed. I have overcome the world. Don't let your heart grow cold. Persevere to the end. And we must do this because we have a mission. And the first point wraps up in verse 14 where Jesus reveals when the end will finally come. It says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. New Testament scholar George Ladd said this verse was the most important verse in all the Bible for Christians. Why does Jesus put us through trials? To proclaim the gospel. To make disciples of all nations. Then the end will come. The end will come when the gospel rings out in every corner of the world. So don't be led astray. Don't be alarmed. Don't grow cold. God will accomplish his mission. Amen. Pastor and author David Platt beautifully puts it this way. He says, gospel proclamation will always result in kingdom consummation. Now, before we move to our second point, let me offer just a word of caution here. Don't let an obsession with prediction overshadow your power to persevere. Often when we think about the future, we focus on how dark it will be. But as someone said, the night is darkest just before the dawn. In the end, as we'll see, there'll be new heavens. There'll be new earth. God's desire is to see as many people come to know him as possible. So, even in trial and tribulation, proclaim the gospel. In the first century, Christians were fed to lions. Peter was crucified upside down. Roman armies tried to rid the world of the gospel. And if those Christians did not persevere... Where would we be? Have you ever asked yourself the question, why are we afraid of the end? Is it that perhaps we don't believe God is in control? Or perhaps we're focusing on the wrong end? Be prepared for persecution because it will come. The pains produce perseverance and passion for the gospel. That's point one. But now we turn to the specific prophecies in point two. In this next section, Jesus gives two specific prophecies, the fall of Jerusalem and his second coming. And as I mentioned, a lot of ink has been spilled over the years on these verses. So before I look at verse 15, let me offer a few interpretive decisions you need to make when looking at prophetic texts. And I'll simply try to make it as simple as possible. I'll say this. When considering prophecies, we have to decide if the prophecy was fulfilled in the past as it relates to us, if it will still be fulfilled in the future, or if it's a mix of both. And what I mean by this, there are times when a prophecy has been fulfilled in the past from our vantage point, but at the time that it was given, it was still very much in the future. Other times, it's speaking about future fulfillment as it relates to us. Or, was it that it did indeed have a fulfillment in the past, but still has application in the future? Advocates of this call it a double fulfillment. 
Now, you may have noticed that the main graphic of our slide here, of our series, has a watermark that reads, Now and Not Yet. That's what theologians call inaugurated eschatology. In other words, the kingdom of God has a now, a present element to it, but there's also a future dimension to the kingdom. Let me give you an illustration. When I used to live in Colorado, I would go and hike mountains. Now, if you've ever hiked a mountain out west, you know that there's a few things that are true. Uh, first, if you are not used to the altitude, you'll get a splitting headache. So you've got to drink more water. And secondly, uh, secondly, there's these things out there called false summits. In other words, from your vantage point as a hiker, it may look like you're reaching the top of the mountain. But once you reach that, reach that supposed peak, you realize there's more to go. That there's another peak to be reached. And I took the time to explain that because I think that's what Jesus is doing here in verses 15 to 20. That both events are future to Jesus and his disciples, but one of the fulfillments is in the past. Let's read verse 15. See, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, you may recognize that phrase, the abomination of desolation, from our series on Daniel last summer. The phrase literally means the abomination that causes desolation. It's an object of hatred and disgust, something that brings offense to God. Now, Daniel uses the phrase several times, but most famously in his prophecy of the 70 weeks in Daniel 9, 24 to 27. Now, Pastor Dave did a great job explaining the multiple points of view on that passage, and we don't have time to rehash that today. Um, today, what I want you to do is picture this scene of Jesus and his disciples, that they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, and they're looking directly at the temple. And when Jesus recalls Daniel, a writer whom his Jewish audience would have known, and cites the abomination that causes desolation, what they would have pictured in their mind would have been Antiochus Epiphanes IV, the Syrian king who in 167 BC conquered Jerusalem, slaughtered a pig, and erected an idol to Zeus on the temple. In addition to that, he butchered the Jewish people until he was beaten back by Jacob Maccabeus and his army. This image is what would have been in Jesus' disciples' minds. So when Jesus says, when you see that abomination of desolation on the temple, run, flee to the mountains. What in the world is he talking about? Well, the key to interpreting this verse lies with another controversial verse later in the chapter in Matthew 24, 34 to 35, where Jesus says this. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will not pass away, but my words will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, again, people debate the meaning and application of this, the phrase, this generation. Some people say this is a future generation, the generation during the last days of history. Others say it specifically relates to the Jewish people. But I would argue that every other time this phrase, this generation, is used in the Gospels, it always means the people of Jesus' own time. And so if we really look at what Jesus says in verses 4 to 26, everything he said comes true in 40 years. Here's what we know from history. Josephus, the historian, records that there was a siege of Jerusalem between 66 and 70 AD. For three and a half years, the Roman legions held Jerusalem hostage. And listen to this. 
Because of the siege, famine set in, along with pollution of the city's water supply. People had to sell their children to obtain food. Some people even cannibalized their children. People who left the city at night to find food were often captured by the Romans and crucified. And eventually the Roman general Titus surrounded the city to cut off any way of escaping. Interestingly, Luke's parallel account of this passage notes that Jerusalem will be surrounded. Josephus records that numerous false prophets arose to mislead the people until the Romans breached the walls and executed 1.1 million people and took an additional 100,000 into slavery. And as they killed the people, what they would do is they would pile the bodies on top of each other to keep other people from escaping. Death was everywhere. Eventually, they demolished the entire city, including the temple, just as Jesus had predicted. In other words, the Roman armies are the abomination that causes desolation. Now, it's also recorded that Christians did escape and fled to a city called Pella, just as Jesus told them in verse 16. Now, I share all that to say that I personally find it difficult to believe that this prophecy did not have a partial fulfillment in 70 AD. At the same time, it doesn't mean there will not be another future fulfillment at the end of the age before Jesus' second coming. I affirm that as well. As theologian George Ladd suggests, the historical and eschatological elements are purposely intertwined. The near event, the destruction of Jerusalem, serves as a symbol of the far event. And that's where Jesus goes next in verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now and no and never will be. That as horrific as the destruction of Jerusalem was in AD 70, it is hard to say that, that this was the most horrific event in history given events like World War II and the Holocaust. Although I personally think this prophecy is specifically related to first century, the first century fall of Jerusalem, it doesn't rule out a time of more intense tribulation before Christ comes back. Again, the phrase, the great tribulation here, has been debated. And there's three basic positions on it. First, some will say that it relates to the time just before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Others will say there's a future tribulation before Jesus' second coming, and it may or may not be seven years. And finally, some will say that this simply relates to the tribulations that Christians face in every generation of the church. Whatever position we take on this passage, we can agree on two things. First, Christians will face tribulations in this life. As we discussed in the first point, we need to be wary of deception. That's what Jesus points out in verses 22 to 26. Second, though, second, Jesus is coming back. And that's the good news of the second prophecy, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Wow. Now that sounds like the end of the world, right? That the sun and the moon will be darkened. The heavens will shake. The disciples ask for a sign and Jesus says, after the tribulation happens and after the gospel is preached, boom. You're going to know I'm coming. Verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. See, Jesus says, here's the sign. 
You're going to see me riding on the clouds, which of course recalls Daniel 7, 13 to 14, but it's also common language in the Old Testament. That as we read in Daniel 7, Jesus, the conquering king, will come and vanquish his enemies, slay the great beast, and establish his kingdom where we will reign with him. See, the tribulation is going to be bad, but help is on the way. Amen. Verse 31, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. He says, you want to know the signs? The heavens are going to shake. Like lightning, the rider on the clouds will come and a loud trumpet will resound in the heavens as Paul expounds in 1 Corinthians 15. All his followers will come out to meet the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Paul writes this, Behold, I tell you a mystery, that we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable And we shall be changed. The great hymn writer Horatio Spafford penned the classic, It is well with my soul. And after he had gone through great tragedy in his life, he lost his whole family during an accident at sea. In the midst of his sorrow and tribulation, he looked forward to the moment of Christ's return. And he penned these words. He said, And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight." And the clouds be rolled back as a scroll when the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. And as they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples ask Jesus the question, what are the signs of your coming? And Jesus tells them this. He says, you're going to experience pain. You're going to experience great pain. But one day, One day, one day, when all hope seems lost, the heavens will shake and you'll see me coming on the clouds because I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you, my bride, my people whom I love. So get ready. Get ready. What if this happened today? Would we be ready? Because the point of this passage is not about date setting. It's to tell us that the king will return. We need to get ready. How do we get ready? Well, that's where Jesus turns for the rest of his time. He tells us about the preparations. Jesus answered the disciples' second question. Now he turns to the first. When is it going to happen? Well, Jesus says only the Father knows. Verse 36. But concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. When is it going to happen, Jesus? I don't know. Now, some people object at this point and ask, well, why doesn't Jesus know? Isn't he God? The reality is that Jesus is fully God and fully human. As such, he chooses to limit himself in his incarnate state. It's what theologians call the kenosis theory. The point of this passage, however, is to keep the disciples from becoming preoccupied with date setting. Because an obsession with the day or the hour would keep them from accomplishing his mission that he laid out in verse 14. Proclaim the gospel to the whole world. You see, Jesus Jesus doesn't answer the disciples' when question. Instead, he tells them how to live. And as has been Jesus' M.O., he does this by telling stories that illustrate how we should live while we wait for the return of the king. 
So how should we prepare? Jesus gives us five stories, each with an application. I'm going to summarize them and give you the point. But go home and read them. First, Jesus tells the story of two people who are engaging in daily tasks. Men are in the field, women are at the mill. When all of a sudden, one is taken, the other is left. What happened? Well, the context of the chapter shows us one person gets taken to judgment, and the other is left to experience life with Christ. As such, it's better to be left behind. Jesus says, what if a thief came to break in your house? If you had known the time, you would have stayed awake, right? Verse 44, therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. No one knows the day or the hour. In fact, this verse goes against all date setting because if you pick a date of Jesus' return, that's probably the time he's not coming back. Instead, we should ask the question, am I living like I'm ready for Jesus to come at any moment? So the first point is this. You've got to be alert. You've got to be alert. Jesus can come at any moment, so we should always be prepared to meet him. Are you alert for Jesus to come at any moment? Second, Jesus tells a story about a master and two servants. He gives each of them responsibilities while he's away on business. One servant is faithful. The other is wicked. And so in the story, the master is away for a long time. So the wicked servant starts to say, well, my master is delayed. And he starts to believe that, that, uh, that he's not coming back for a long time. And what does the wicked servant do? Well, he lives however he wants to live. He beats the other servants. He gets drunk. But all of a sudden, the master returns unexpectedly. And because that servant has acted wickedly, the master kills him. Interestingly, the wicked servant is called a hypocrite. So the second thing we need to do is be responsible or judgment is coming. The point is we should not live however we want, thinking we have time to change because every day we should be living for the Lord and steward the resources he has given us well. Third, Jesus tells the story of the ten virgins. This story teaches readiness in light of the unknown. There's a, a wedding scene where the groom leaves his parents' house with a group of friends. And as was customary, they go to the house of the bride and then they're going to process back to the bridegroom's house. However, in this story, the bridegroom is delayed. And so five of the virgins, or the bridesmaids, uh, took extra oil for their lamps for the procession. The other five didn't. And they all fall asleep. When all of a sudden, there's an announcement that the bridegroom is here. So all the virgins wake up, but five of them need to go find more oil for their lamps for the procession. As such, they arrive late, and the door of the house is shut. The wise virgins are prepared with extra oil for the procession, and they arrive on time and are welcomed in. See, the imagery here is of Jesus coming. And the question for us is, are we wise or are we foolish as we wait for Jesus' return? Because it's tempting to think that Jesus isn't coming back for hundreds of years. It's way in the future. But the lesson of this story is this. We've got to be expectant. Be expectant. Don't fall asleep or be ill-prepared while we wait. Sadly, I think many of us live like the foolish virgins. We coast through our Christian lives not really living for Jesus. Fourth, Jesus tells the parable of the talents. 
And in this story, there's a wealthy landowner who entrusts money to three different servants. Uh, the, two, the first two servants invest their money and return it to the master with interest. But the third servant, out of fear, does nothing with the money he's given. Instead, he goes and he buries it. And when the master returns, he's angry with the final servant because although he gives his money back, he did nothing with it. And so again, the point for us is this. We've got to be productive. Be productive. We don't know when Jesus is coming, but he has given us a mission. He's entrusted us with his message. When the Lord of the harvest comes, he wants to reap a harvest of souls for his kingdom. And some of us go and bury our heads in the sand and we do the bare minimum. And when Jesus comes, will he say of us, you wicked servant? Finally, Jesus gives a picture of the final judgment. All the previous stories point to judgment, but here we get a picture of the king coming, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And this section is the first time that Jesus is, in this discourse, that Jesus is described as the king. Indeed, at the second coming, he does come as a conquering king who will judge the nations. But in this story, he does something very interesting. He uses the image of a sheep and a goat. And he asks each of them, essentially, did you take care of me when I was in need? But here's the interesting thing. Jesus already knows who took care of him. He knows the sheep helped and the goats didn't. But when he reveals this truth to both the sheep and the goats, you can read it in there, it says this of both the sheep and the goats. They're surprised. Huh? When did I do that, Jesus? Neither had any idea what Jesus was talking about. What's he doing here? He's telling us that at the judgment seat of Christ, all of us will be accountable for our actions in this life. Whether or not we trusted Christ with our life will be revealed in a changed heart that is displayed in a changed life. And in this account, both the righteous and the unrighteous were surprised. And don't you see that this is a theme Jesus has been tracing back all the way to the Sermon on the Mount. Remember the end of that sermon? There's two roads. (laughs) There's two trees. There's two houses. The question is, which are you? That at the end of the age, we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, King Jesus, where our true heart will be revealed for all to see. You're not going to be able to hide. Are you a sheep or a goat? They look similar, but they're very different. What type of surprise will you get when the Son of Man comes? And so Jesus doesn't answer the question That the disciples ask the when question of when will come. He simply tells them how to live while they wait. But rest assured the return of the king will happen. And how we live when we encounter trial and tribulation. How we live when we interact with other believers. That will reveal whether we truly knew Jesus or not. Did we love Jesus? Or did we abandon the love we had at first? So as we close, I'd like to share a a sad story, I think, that captures this. Where's Susan? That was the innocent question Joshua Rogers' daughter asked as they were reading The Last Battle, the final book of the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Susan, if you're not familiar with the story, was the child queen who helped her siblings save Narnia from the white witch in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. 
However, she is conspicuously absent from an early scene in the last battle that includes every character who traveled to Narnia as a child. Rogers writes this. He says, Daddy, where is she? My daughter asked again. We'll see, I said, with a tinge of sadness. Although I've read the Chronicles of Narnia dozens of times since I was a boy, Susan's tragic and gets me every time. The book eventually reveals that Susan grows up and outgrows her love for Narnia. We get few details about her until the end of the book when High King Peter responds to an inquiry into his sister's whereabouts. He says, my sister Susan is no longer a friend of Narnia. Yes, said Eustace, and whenever you've tried to get her to come and talk about Narnia or do anything about Narnia, she says, what wonderful memories you have. Fancy you're still thinking about all those funny games we used to play when we were children. Susan thought she had become too grown up for thoughts of a great king like Aslan and a blessed land like Narnia. And though she had once experienced it, she left it behind. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up for one final song. And as they do, I would just say, Jesus, the great lion, says to us, those who endure to the end will be saved, but the love of many will grow cold. And that's possible even for the best of us. Because in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, John writes to the church in Ephesus, a church that had done well, that had followed Jesus and loved him. But even to them, John writes this. He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And the one who endures to the end will be saved, but the love of many will grow cold. And so Jesus began this whole discourse by saying two things. He said, don't be led astray, don't be alarmed, and then he said, don't grow cold. Why? Because he will always forever take care of us. That no matter how bad it gets, and no matter how many tears we shed, and no matter how much pain we endure The Son of Man will enter to save the day, riding on the clouds. And he will reign forever and ever and ever. Amen. May we never leave Narnia. Because one day the lion will lay down with the lamb and there will be peace. Are you ready? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we recognize... Hard truths that are spoken in Scripture, Lord. And today there's some hard truths that are spoken, Lord. But there's also good news. Good news about the future. That even though things will get bad one day, one day, one day, you will come for your bride. And we will sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Lord, that's good news. There's going to be new heavens, new earth, new everything, Lord. And and you tell us in Revelation that there will be no more mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things will pass away. And to that day, we look forward to the future. Help us to focus our minds there, Lord. And as we wait for your coming, to be ready. In Jesus' name, we pray that. Amen. Let's stay in church.